the masters almost surely have a plan This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man And until you thoroughly tested every last close trusted view I find the more you think you know, the less you really do That's true, Dr. Zayas Where would we be without THC? How's it going, higher side chatters? Most of us have seen enough by now to know that there are mechanisms and aspects to our reality that few people really understand. And we also know damn well that those of the power pyramid persuasion who stumble upon these useful tools, ones that are typically roped off in the realm of magic, aren't exactly shouting from the rooftops about their secret one-ups on the rest of us. So we do the digging ourselves in an era where magic is mocked, ritual is ridiculed, and prediction is considered a put-on. But when one really examines the human story, this sliver of time seems more the exception than the rule, and the re-enchantment of the world seems damn near inevitable. And what better way to do our part than exploring aspects like astrology, cardomancy, and the nature of prediction itself, with someone who's made these things his specialty, and that someone is Preston Gibbs. Preston is a professional tarot reader and astrologer living in Plano, Texas. He's also the operator of liminalastrology.com where he discusses his ongoing study of modern and traditional techniques in the fields of astrology and cardomancy. So scatter some chicken bones, dry out some tea leaves, and start tracking the great gears in the sky, because I can't wait to get down to it. Still in the wake of the almighty American eclipse from deep in the heart of Texas, ladies and gentlemen, bend the knee, Preston, my man. Welcome to the higher side. Thanks, Greg. Glad to be here. Yeah, man, I'm really pumped. From... What I understand, this is your first real interview talking about this stuff, but you are super knowledgeable and I do enjoy your articles. And let me start by asking you how this stuff became your forte, because as you put it to me, you first started down this path when you were making an indie video game about six years ago and realized we were probably in one, which is a provocative (laughs) thought I've had myself. But tell us a little bit about what set this off for you. I don't know if it was six or seven years ago, but somewhere around that time I was making indie video games and somewhere in the process of making one of these games, I realized that the model of the world that I was making in the game fit the model that we live in perfectly. (laughs) And the more you think about that, the more you think that is totally bizarre. And for example, you can explain a number of things that are usually considered unexplainable by putting this model into practice. If you think about psi effects and ghosts and people knowing things that they shouldn't, such as prediction, this is very explainable if we all lived within a system the way that an AI generated within a computer program would be. So rather than being people living in this dead mechanistic universe that science would describe it as, we live more in a world that's like a computer program in which we're all part of the same system. So to explain that further, say, for example, I don't know how much of a game player you are, Greg, but huge game player. Okay. Well, when I was growing up and I think we're about the same age, I'm 31, 32. There you go. You know, golden, I was huge, huge. (laughs) And if you remember like the way, like it was so rudimentary by today's standards, but back then it was cutting edge. And Say you throw a grenade or there's some kind of smoke in the way, you can't see through it, but the computer enemies can. 
So they shoot right through it as if there's nothing there because they're cheating. Mm-hmm. The reason that happens is because they don't have vision the way you do. They're just drawing on the entire world as a whole that they have perfect knowledge of. Mm-hmm. And so the way you get around that is AI sophisticates in today's programs is that they just fake it. You know, they still have all that information. They just tell them not to look there, basically. Mm -hmm. So it says, hey, if there's smoke here, you can't see down that hallway. Pretend like you don't see it. But they still have that information. Well, the same thing could be applied to us, especially in the nature of prediction, for example, of how we might know something that we're not supposed to, because we actually have total information and the arrow of time does not point in one direction, as it's often said, but it's actually all constant and happening in one single moment. So there's no such thing as the future. And so if you apply it that way, you could say that we're all essentially in a game. And of course, the first rule of any game is knowing that you're in one. Huh. And most of us don't know that. And part of the point of being in a game is that you have to agree upon the rules. And in this case, we've agreed upon rules where we're just not allowed to know certain things. So we just take it for granted that we don't, when in reality, we probably do. And there's plenty of examples throughout history that show that we do have access to information that we should not know. Right. I think that's a great way of looking at it, man. And I guess you'd also be my second astrologer guest who became interested via video games, which is just its own coincidence. It's interesting. But I, I also listened to a episode of Rune Soup recently with Lionel Snell. He, he gave a great interview and he really was making this same point that when you acknowledge the interconnectedness and reoccurring ratios of nature, all these things, these are the very clues that suggest we're part of the same system of a coded reality, very in line with what you're saying. I think it's a great point to make. I'm glad you brought up that interview because I listened to it too here recently and it, it was amazing. He had excellent points to make. He used a point that I like to use all the time, which is generating random numbers. Mm. You know, if I ask you to give me two numbers right now, you could, and it would feel random to you, but obviously it's not. You're drawing from your unconscious. You're drawing from numbers you saw earlier in the day. It doesn't matter where they come from. To us, they feel random, but the truth is, is that where they come from is just so expansive that we can't comprehend the pattern, but the pattern is there. Right. And Yeah, Lionel Snell made the exact same point with computer-generated reality where the same thing is true with modern video games and programs of any kind. We can't generate truly random numbers. It takes far too much processing power. It's just not possible. But we can generate pseudo-random numbers with virtually zero processing power where we just use something like the internal clock on your computer to pull random numbers from a gigantic table, so gigantic that you and I would never notice the pattern unless we played for hundreds of thousands of hours. Mm-hmm. And the world seems to work from that same thing. There's so many things that seem utterly random until you really, really look at them. The longer you observe them, the more patterns apply themselves. I and mean, we see this in numerology. We certainly see it in astrology. You see it in almost anything. You've had numerous guests on that described patterns just like this, where the more that they looked, the more that they saw something. And I don't think that's a coincidence. And I also don't think that that's unique to just the areas they're looking. I think it will happen absolutely anywhere if you look long enough. And that's not a coincidence. It's the fundamental nature of the reality that we live in. Yeah, man. (laughs) Cheers to that. And you are right. One uh, previous guest, Richard Merrick, is a guy who sticks out in my mind. He wrote the book, The Venus Blueprint. It's a few years 
back and I really want to have him on again, but something he mentioned was this very thing that distribution of things that you would think would be random, actually a pattern emerges when you get a big enough data set. And the example he used was roadkill. Like if you mapped roadkill along the highway for an extended stretch, you would actually find eventually some kind of equilibrium or pattern emerge, some kind of ratio. And I just think that's mind boggling. But at the same time, it would make sense if there's some kind of simulation in play here. Certainly. That would definitely describe the very nature of prediction and the fact that why is it that we can throw bones or study entrails or, you know, augury, watch the flight of birds, throw dice, look at cards, you know, and of course, look at the planets. And all of these things seem to draw in information that we definitely shouldn't know. And these things don't make any sense. Mm -hmm. in, a, in a rational universe, there's no way that you can shuffle a pack of cards, throw some cards out and tell someone that you've never met before that, you know, you're sorry their dad died six months ago. Mm -hmm. How could that happen? Exactly. And uh, another place where that kind of plays out really well is in the Westworld show, because the man in black, that's the first thing he does is he starts digging into the code of the game, the, the mechanisms within it. Just like you mentioned the entrails thing. That's what set the light off to me because he starts looking under people's skin and other stuff like that because he knows that there's some stuff underneath that you can extract information from. So yeah, man, fascinating stuff. But it was uh, a big catalyst for scheduling the show when we did is that it's five days after the big eclipse. And I wanted to sort of let the dust settle a bit before getting an astrologer on to discuss it. And there are those who will say, look, dude, Trump is still in office. Everything is business as usual. Doesn't seem like it matters too much. But at the very least, at a time when everyone seems so angry, it was refreshing to see so many people looking up, amazed by the event. If anyone went out walking around, you could see that there was some sharing in the collective wave of awe that we all sort of experienced. And it definitely disrupted the humdrum Monday routine this week. And that's a beautiful thing, at least. But what are your thoughts on the eclipse and where we are now a week out from it? Well, the first thing to know about eclipses from an astrological point of view is that no astrologer where <laughs> that's worth their salt anyway is going to tell you that something big is going to happen at the eclipse, like on the day or even on the week. Right. And to say that we didn't see things happening at a national level, certainly from Trump's perspective that week, is just insane. <laughs> you're definitely not reading the news if you're not <laughs> noticing that he's falling apart in his tweets and what have you. That's and true. Part of that, from my perspective, has to do with also Mercury went retrograde right before that. It actually went retrograde the night that Charleston happened. And mm -hmm. right after that, normally when Mercury goes retrograde, we would expect to have problems with communication. And right after that, we see Trump's tweets that are getting him in a lot of hot water because he appears to be saying it's OK to be a Nazi. But on top of that, from the eclipse perspective, it's usually going to instigate change, especially with those who have an aspect by degree with the eclipse. And Trump does. The eclipse happened at 28 degrees Leo. His rising sign is Leo and his ascendant is directly on that. I believe it's just over that. It's 29 degrees. And so with him, obviously, there's been a lot of talk about it. Everyone's expecting something big. Generally, it's not going to happen on the day. Usually it's actually going to start 
quite a bit before the eclipse happens. The eclipse will generally reveal something or trigger something, and that will go on for some time. And, you know, things started looking pretty bad for him a few weeks before this. This is when he had several hirings and firings in extremely short order. You know, as Mercury is stationing to go retrograde, we start having more and more communication problems. He's pretty famous for his bad tweets anyway, but they've gotten a lot worse. And especially in his White House communications department is where most of the firings have happened. That's a pretty huge coincidence hmm. from my perspective. Yeah. And I was also going to ask you just about Regulus in general, because it does seem to play such a big role here. Right. Yeah. And his ascendant is on Regulus. And generally, Regulus is a big sign. I've written an article about this in the past on Trump because it's pretty rare to see somebody with their ascendant on Regulus. And when you do, historically, what's normally been written about it is that that is pretty much a guarantee to rise to power no matter what. But there's many other things about Regulus that if, if Trump doesn't know about, and I'm assuming he doesn't, it's not good for him. It tends to mean success, especially in military success. However, there's always the caveat with everything that's ever been written from the ancient astrologers about Regulus that if that person engages in revenge, that everything will come collapsing down for them. And that generally, because of this, the guaranteed rise to power that's given by Regulus does not last. And if he, he's very revengeful or vengeful. So <laughs> I'm not expecting good things from that. <laughs> well, I would ask you, is there any kind of synchronicity or common aspects to all presidential charts? Because it seems like such a specific and important role that you might be able to extract a commonality or pattern. But at the same time, when I look at astrological predictions as a whole, it does seem like there's multiple signs and multiple configurations that can mean the same thing. So maybe not, but I was a bit curious about that. Well, sure. Regulus is not going to be the only indicator, for example, to rise to power. There's plenty of them, and there's plenty of different kinds of things like that. Not to mention, rising to a position like the presidency is not always going to be directly in the chart. There, you're going to look more into modern astrological interpretations where you're getting into the psychological basis of things. A lot of times people, you know, Leo risings, very common for, for this kind of situation. It just depends. Just like we've had so many different types of presidents, we've had many different types of charts. Mm -hmm. The only interesting thing to me from an astrological perspective with presidents is we seem to have quite a few of them that have had at least a, a grasp of astrology and some of them have been very interested in yeah, definitely, man. And I did want to get into that a little bit, but I also wanted to ask you about, because you mentioned the modern interpretation, there are different models of astrology, the uh, predictive versus the psychological. Can you break that down a bit for us and maybe tell us where you lean? Well, the two main ones are going to be modern astrology, which is what most people know. Well, they're not going to know all about it. Generally, most people only know sun sign type of situation, but Modern astrology kind of has its basis in a psychological approach. It's generally what came about in the 60s and 70s when the massive revival happened around the hippie movement. And that's going to be the kind of astrology where you're told you have planets and signs in certain aspects, and these are going to either make you introverted, extroverted, what have you. And here recently, most of the texts up until about 20 years ago 
that came before this have always been in Latin. And so a lot of astrologers have just ignored it. Hmm. Recently, we have people like Benjamin Dykes and several others who have started to translate these texts. And that has caused a whole new wave of interest in traditional astrology where you get a lot more of a predictive approach. This is the ones that this type of astrology is much closer to the Mesopotamian period when we're talking about omens. This is the kind of thing where people do see an eclipse and make a hard prediction like president's going to die or, you know, and modern astrology is not going to do that. In fact, hardcore modern astrologers don't like astrologers to make predictions because it makes them look bad when they don't get them right. Mm -hmm. I tend to lean more on the traditional approach. I think that going back to basics is usually the correct way to go about almost anything. And those guys had it more right than we do now. Right. It seems like your impression is that the reason for the change was because modern astrology wanted to get kind of accepted as a science. And so they had to kind of tweak their approach a little bit, but that may make the underlying mechanisms fall apart or the point of it fall apart. To some degree, I would definitely agree with that. I would say that if you look at astrology in the 60s and 70s, all the way up until, you know, the peak around the 1980s, we had this massive revival and it happened to coincide around the same time that psychology was huge. And if you look at it, it followed a really similar track record where you have Jung and Freud doing this super early day psychology. And the more that they're trying to get into the collegiate system, the academic ivory tower, so to speak, more and more of their stuff gets sloughed off in exchange for being accepted, so to speak. And the reason for that is fairly obvious. The same reason why so many quote unquote scientists and what have you will attack astrology and say it cannot be empirically proved. And, you know, why has it never been shown in the lab? Well, quite a bit of psychology can't either. Mm -hmm. And in exchange for this getting rid of some of their more wild concepts, they were allowed in, even though most of what they do even now does also does not stand up to empirical evidence because much like astrology, it doesn't exist in that kind of empirical model that'll work for what we consider to be modern science. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's a strong drive there for quite a while where astrologers were trying to do pretty much the same thing. They wanted to get back into the academic system. And in order to do that, they were willing to give up a lot of what made astrology astrology. You get rid of prediction, you get rid of any kind of, or, you know, if you keep prediction, you use the new <laughs> sanctified word forecasting. Right. <laughs> or you say you're a consultant or you say that, you know, any number of other things like this. And you essentially ignore the roots of astrology, which come from omens. And it comes from hard prediction. Astrologers of, you know, the Hellenistic period or the medieval period, they wouldn't recognize the astrology that most people have been exposed to today. And that's not to say that's all bad. I'm not trying to railroad psychological astrology versus predictive astrology, simply saying that one in exclusion of the other is definitely not the correct route. Right. And I did want to talk about that history and take it back pretty far. And I love that you listen to THC and that we're pretty aligned with where we think the sweet spots are on these topics. And to me, that's restoring that historical context and examining areas where we see the elite putting value in this stuff. And both, I think, help make the case that things like magic, astrology, and just general divination have merit. So 
Let's kind of look at that history of prediction a bit deeper, as you put it. Where would you really start that story? Well, it's tough to say, actually. From the astrological perspective, we are almost certain that the astrology, as we know it, started its process of congealing around 100 BCE. But we know prediction has been around far longer than that. Astrology probably has, too, but we don't have any evidence beyond that. Mm. We do have evidence of, say, oracles going back to at least the 8th century BCE and probably a lot farther than that. But I can think right offhand that the Oracle of the Dead, uh, the Necromantia, Ephra, that was 8th century BCE. Homer describes it, and he describes it exactly as we've found it today, but archaeologists have found it. So we know it goes back several thousand years, and there's any number of things that point to the fact that a prediction has been around as long as humans have been. Right. That's no small thing, you know? No, I mean, that's something that for my money is how can we ignore it now? It's one of our oldest traditions. It's something that humans have always done. We have always predicted the future or tried to gain information that we simply shouldn't have for any other reason. Right. And Ptolemy is where I guess the official start would be right or the first person to kind of put the idea of celestial influence into the culture in terms of the records we have right he's certainly around the area hellenistic astrology is where everything congealed together into the fourfold system that modern astrologers would recognize which is where you have the signs the planets the houses and the aspects and before this they didn't do that they had much more rudimentary omens mm -hmm. and on top of that Mesopotamian astrology even kind of included what we would consider not astrology now, like the weather and things like this. Like if, you know, Mars is in a certain location and the weather is such, this means that. We sloughed that off at some point and it just became, if Mars is here, this kind of thing keeps happening. So it doesn't seem to be tied in with the weather. Right on. But yeah, around Hellenistic astrology is where this congealed and Claudius Ptolemy is one of the first... You know, well, he's not one of the first to write about it, but he's one of the first that we still have access to. There's quite a bit of text that we know existed at one time because we have texts talking about those texts, but we don't have them anymore. But Ptolemy is amazingly, his Tetra Biblos, his four books on astrology, they lasted the entire time. So for a very long time, Ptolemy was basically considered the last word. And it wasn't until much more recently that we realized that actually Ptolemy's system was not the standard that was being used at the time. He had his own strange take on it. And we've had to go back. Chris Brennan, for example, has really pushed the move back to whole sign houses instead of any of the Ptolemaic systems that a lot of us have used before that. But regardless, Ptolemy was a big name player in astrology. And he could definitely be argued to have protected astrology to the extent that we still have it today. If he hadn't written what he did the way that he did, we may not even know the word astrology now. Hmm. And the reason for that is, is because religion was getting much more hostile during his time, especially to the old world oracles and predictions of any kind like this. And it was just, the scientific mode that was coming about at this time was also extremely hostile to the idea of the planets just 
omens in general. So the idea that planets would signal something and not cause it. And the reason for this is because the old astrologers before them, they had no problem with this. They assumed that the gods were moving all the planets around, which they called the fixed stars or the wandering stars versus the fixed stars. And they thought that, you know, all of that was being moved around by the gods, whichever gods that they ascribed to their particular pantheon, and that they were using those to send them signals as to what was going to happen. So that was no problem. Of course, when more religions like Christianity come about, they start pushing away from that. They want to describe it as a natural system. So Ptolemy redefines the way that a lot of them at the time viewed astrological aspects in saying that rather than the planets just being signals from God or gods telling us what's about to happen, he describes it the way that the Greeks were describing optics at the time and the fact that they were actually shooting rays to one another. And if the planets could see one another, that was what was causing something or the rays were actually hitting us directly. And that sort of holds up in the sense that, you know, we can definitely compare that to the way that we understand the moon's workings now and the tides. And we can definitely see the effects of the sun's rays because we would be dead without them. But (laughs) regardless, it's hard to believe that a planet as far away as Saturn, and I can't remember, I think offhand it's 1.2 billion miles away. That's really, really far. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Certainly, we haven't found any rays that are invisible so far that go that distance and still have a measurable effect on us. Not to the extent that astrology would describe the effect. It's hard to believe. But there are plenty of astrologers who would defend this. I personally don't. I don't see any reason for there to need to be rays being shot out of the planets that are directly controlling us. I find it has a lot. You know, I go back to the omen approach. I really think that there's no need to describe the mechanism that way. It's much easier to just simply say it's just like the hands on my watch. Right. When they're in this position, it means it's three o'clock. The watch is not making it three o'clock, but it is all the same. And I think that's a great analogy. I did like reading that because it makes sense. You know, the sun is at the highest point at noon, not because your watch says noon, but because that's the mechanism with which it signals what's going on. Right. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. And even before Ptolemy's day, like when we see astrological alignments and megalithic structures, do you think that has anything to do with prediction or do you think they were just fascinated by the environment in general? It's hard to say. Uh, It is. You know, that question, that's a million dollar question. I really wish I could say with impunity what's going on there. Right. But we can definitely say for sure that they were deeply entrenched in prediction. They didn't have the same thoughts about it that we do today. They assumed that that would be the case, which, again, between the amount of time that prediction has been around for us and the fact that up until very recently, humans in general just assumed prediction was definitely the thing. It's amazing that people are so averse to it now. <laughs> How could it have lasted this long if were they, the assumption that everyone before us is just ignorant is something that basically gets taught in school today and it's totally shocking. I agree, man. As far as what's going on with those alignments, I don't know. I feel like they definitely had something to do with prediction because – Much like how they didn't have a distinction between astrology and astronomy at the time, 
they wouldn't have looked at the stars and the planets without assuming some predictive qualities, at least some divine qualities. It wouldn't be something that they looked at just from a, a mechanistic perspective the way science would today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. And uh, just like kind of to summarize your general idea on predictions, you typed a pretty good paragraph to me that I thought was worth reading. But you say, predictions are one of our oldest traditions. All cultures, no matter how removed, practiced one or more forms. So what the hell happened? You have a guy like Cicero that modern science and philosophy will put on a pedestal as a great man of reason, yet we have primary source material in his own handwriting saying that any man, no matter what his status, would be a fool to not consult the oracles before doing something. We have well-known oracles like the Oracle of Delphi that operated continuously for an order of magnitude longer than the nation we were both born in has existed and numerous first-hand accounts of its value. But now we act like this stuff never happened or that everyone before us was somehow cripplingly ignorant. And that is well said. You could say the same about Isaac Newton and his large alchemical library. Just nothing to see here. Yeah, and uh, Newton knew well enough to keep secret on most of that. But (laughs) regardless, there's countless people that history and science puts on a pedestal and they totally sweep under the rug the fact that they were astrologers or magicians or what have you. Just like Kepler. He's, if you go on Wikipedia right now, I pretty much am certain that it'll just say he's an astronomer and list all his astronomical achievements and never mention the fact that he was a big time astrologer. Hmm. Just like, you know, if you go and look up Newton, it's going to talk all about Newton's scientific discoveries. And if it even mentions his more occult leanings, it's going to be very footnoted and probably in a, isn't this silly kind of uh, direction. Right. This is one of his fringe interests, and if he was born in modern times, he probably wouldn't have thought that had any merit. Yes, yes. Even though, you know, as he got older, we know for sure that he pretty much gave up anything but alchemy and was deeply interested in it and thought it was the most important thing that he was doing. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, history whitewashes that down to the fact that he achieved all these great things, and he was a little bit crazy when he got old, and that's (laughs) it. But back to... Your mention of Cicero, for example, Cicero is an interesting person because he didn't follow the divinatory practices. He didn't like them. But at the same time, he still is fascinating because he's a skeptic and totally acknowledges the fact that it was taken for granted in his time. I can quote him right here and say, he said, now I'm aware of no people, however refined and learned or however savage and ignorant, which does not think that signs are given of future events and that certain Persons can recognize these signs and foretell events before they occur. So it's fascinating to me that we have somebody like him who's actually a skeptic and yet totally acknowledges the fact that in his time, it was absolutely taken for granted by virtually everyone else that signs were there and that certain people could find the answers to those if they looked. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, it's hilarious in that very text where he's ultimately saying that he doesn't believe. He admits that he's only had one dream in his whole life and can't remember any others. And the fact that he feels that his life is basically without purpose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm not at all surprised to read that after reading that here's somebody who throws out the window any kind of more magical perspective on life or openness to things being beyond the coldly rational and random. Here's somebody who on one hand will slap everyone else's wrists and say, how could you possibly believe that bunk? God, my life sucks so bad. Exactly, man. And 
you are right in that it is such the pattern of the high school history books to say that these bright minds, they just get crazy in their old age and start looking into weird areas. And <laughs> if there really was no merit to these weird areas, you'd think it'd kind of be the opposite, that when they're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, they'd start just absorbing everything. And then slowly, as they became more academic, they would let those things fall by the wayside if they had no merit, rather than going to them when they're at the peak of their scientific knowledge and then going down those roads. I mean, it just seems like that alone should be a clue that once you get past all the sanctioned stuff, there's more there. Right. It's just so interesting. But in that paragraph of yours that I had read, you mentioned the Oracle of Delphi. And that is a term that I think everyone has heard. But I kind of think that's where our knowledge trails off. Do you know anything more about the Oracle of Delphi or that era of oracles? Certainly. So Delphi was a location that had quite a few temples, but it was most famous for the temple to Apollo. And that's where the oracle was, the oracle of Apollo. The high priestess of this temple was named the Pythia. And the Pythia was very renowned and respected. This was one of the best positions a woman could have at this time. They were allowed to own property. They were treated like royalty. And they were taken extremely seriously. We have firsthand accounts from people like Plato and Plutarch and Herodotus. They all write about the Oracle of Delphi, and it's frequently referred to as something that is in high reverence. Basically, anyone worth their merit, if they're considering something important, they're going to go to the Oracle first. They would travel all the way to Delphi, bathe themselves, and then see the Pythia, who only sees people once a month to give predictions. And then the predictions would be given in rhyming hexameter, mm. and this would be their answer. And several of them are famous. We have no way to know for sure how how apocryphal several of these are, but almost everyone would recognize some of the predictions, some of the rhymes that are given or predictions that are given from the Temple of Apollo, such as Know Thyself and what have you. And this has been later on attributed to any number of people. And again, we don't know how apocryphal that could be. We do know that we're told at one point that the temple itself had all of these chiseled on the side of it as they were given, but it's long gone. We only have a couple of pillars left standing. And actually the temple went to three or four temples in the time it was available. But what's fascinating too, to me, is that the temple at Delphi, it operated as an oracle from about the fourth century BCE all the way until 390 AD. So you're talking about, yeah, a period of about 800 years. So Damn. four times longer than this nation I'm living in right now has been around. Close enough anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is noteworthy. It's a phenomenally long time for people to go somewhere and receive predictions from somebody. And at no point did they ever think, hey, this is all bullshit. Apparently, that wasn't a problem. It was... Countless examples with those same people I noted earlier who wrote about the Oracle of Delphi and wrote about its predictive power and things that it would say that ultimately changed history. Even, you know, we know at one point Alexander the Great went there to get his and the Apithia refused to talk to him that day, said come back later. And Alexander, not being one to take that lightly, grabs her and drags her by the hair until she screams, you know. Well, let me back this up because I didn't actually say what he asked. So we know that Alexander the Great also went to the temple at Delphi. That's how important it was. And he wanted his prediction given. 
And he asked when he would conquer the known world or if he would conquer the known world. And the Pythia refused to answer him and said to come back later. Rather than do that, he drags her off the mound and carries her by her hair until she screams out that he's immortal. And he drops her right then and says, then I have my answer. And I'm sure that's somewhat apocryphal as well. But we do know from several different accounts that he did go to the Oracle before he did go to the Oracle before his more famous push to ultimately conquer the known world. Hmm. So if it was important enough for Alexander to go there, it must have been considered fairly important. Right. And, you know, you had mentioned that how long it was in existence. And I just thought that was so interesting. So I was looking up some stuff on it to, to try to see, like, why was it destroyed? Was it just the victim of a declining empire or what happened? And there are actually like different reports. I heard that it was destroyed by fire and then I heard that it was destroyed by an earthquake. But I was curious if you knew any alternative story of what would happen to a place of such importance that had existed for such a long period of time. So it did actually get destroyed by fire and an earthquake, but those things destroyed some of the earlier temples and then it came back. They kept rebuilding it. It wasn't until near the fall of Rome when it finally just fell into disarray. It was probably more the change of religious doctrine than anything that actually brought down the, the oracles, including uh, the Oracle of Delphi. It was because you have, you know, the rise of Christianity and other mainstream religions that said this doesn't work. And therefore, as people started going away, the oracle fell into disarray, the temple fell into disarray. One of the last oracles we have from Delphi is in 362 CE, where it's recorded as, Tell the king the fair rot house has fallen. No shelter has Apollo, nor sacred laurel leaves. The fountains are now silent, and the voice is still. Damn. Yeah, and I thought that was a pretty amazing quote. And again, I'm sure that that might be juiced up for us these days, but mm -hmm. regardless... It was the change of religion and what have you that really did it. People stopped believing in Apollo. People stopped believing in oracles. And so they died out, but they lasted for an extremely long time with no problems whatsoever. And to me, that's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we kind of have this Hollywood version of a medieval general consulting their mage before battle and that sort of thing. <laughs> and we know, for example, Queen Elizabeth kept John Dee as an advisor are there other areas of history where you've seen predictive magic and power intersect in interesting ways that might be worth a mention? It's happened a bunch of times, rarely as explicitly as John D. He is <laughs> really something else. But yeah. astrology in particular, I know that has been used as recently as, well, a few presidents ago. We know several presidents knew about astrology, such as Teddy Roosevelt, who would talk about it at parties and in various company from time to time, but I don't know that he actually had an astrologer or how big into it he was. But for example, during World War II, everybody knows that the Nazis were into some crazy shit. Mm -hmm. And one of them was definitely astrology. There was an astrologer in 1933 named Carl Ernst Kraft, who successfully predicted several big things that caught the attention of some of the elite, right? He ultimately ended up being involved personally with Hitler and Joseph Goebbels in making these predictions. And it wasn't 
till he started making the predictions that if they didn't end the war by 1939, that things would start going south for them. And that started getting him on the ropes with the Nazis. They didn't like that. They only liked predictions that said they were awesome. Mm-hmm. Another big one was in 1939, he predicted that Hitler's life would be in danger between November 7th and November 10th, which was right I think it was November 8th that a bomb exploded at a celebration event that Hitler narrowly didn't get killed by. And they actually arrested him because they thought that he couldn't have known that unless he was part of the resistance. And it took a very long time for him to make them understand that it was astrology and not the resistance movement that let him know that. Mm -hmm. And anyway, he made it almost to the end of the war, but... His predictions fell on bad times when he started saying more and more negative things about them at the exact same time that more and more negative things kept happening. And he ultimately died just before the end of the war when he was in a prison cell. Hmm. But what's interesting about that to me is that Churchill and the other allied leaders knew that Hitler was using an astrologer, so they had to get one too. Right. (laughs) And theirs is way more suspicious than Kraft. They got a guy named Louis D. Wall, and he pretty much wasn't an astrologer. He was basically a sun sign sham artist. He knew virtually nothing, from what I can tell, about astrology, but they thought he did. (laughs) And, And so the fact that Hitler got a real astrologer because those guys actually believed in astrology. You look at the way the Allies approached it, they got a you know, a carnival barker because they didn't believe in it. Uh And what's interesting is their approach to Hitler and the other Nazi leaders. They wanted actual predictions. They knew that they worked and they wanted them and they got quite a few. They just didn't like what they got. The allies never wanted a prediction. They wanted a scam. They wanted Wall to rewrite things like Nostradamus and write it in a way that predicted the downfall of the Third Reich. And then they would print these up in huge copies, and then they would send them out over the occupied areas in planes and drop them as war propaganda. And another thing that they would do is in all the papers, they would write fake sun sign horoscopes, all of which talking obviously about how the Allied cause was the obvious cosmic preference. And specifically, they would pay a lot of attention to Taurus, which is Hitler's sun sign, where every single week they would run a message that said something along the lines of how unlucky and dangerous and and negative a time it was to make any kind of important decisions. And whether that ultimately turned out to be relevant or not, we don't know, because, you know, the astrology ended up being moot here because Hitler didn't like his own and had him imprisoned. A common motif between power and prediction, it seems. (laughs) Yes. But, If we move forward a little bit from the American side, we have Ronald Reagan, who is one of the most, you know, beloved right wing presidents, certainly. And we actually know that he was very interested in astrology, way more so than most people think, if they even know about it at all. Which is fascinating because actually that got confirmed in 1988 when they even ran it on the cover of the New York Times, but it just seemed to get swept under the rug. So what happened, the official story we're told is that it was Nancy, his wife, Mm -hmm. who was very interested in astrology, and Ronald just humored her, basically. 
But we're told that the whole thing came about because of his attempted assassination in 1981. And Nancy, terrified and wanting to find a way to protect him, she turned to astrology. And she turned in particular to an astrologer in California named Joan Quigley. And they would have long phone conversations. And Joan would essentially use what astrologers would call electional astrology. And she would map out weeks and months ahead like a calendar and say, you know, this is a good day. This is not a good day. Don't go outside the, you know, what have you. One of the most famous ones she did is when the Iran-Contra affair was breaking. She told Ronald to not say anything about it. And that drove everybody else in his cabinet insane because he didn't speak about it publicly for a very long time after it broke. And it was specifically because of advice from his astrologer, Joan Quigley, who told him, do not talk about this in public hmm. till after this time, which is exactly what he did. So, again, it's very suspicious to me that we're given this official idea that Nancy was into it. But Ronald wasn't because Ronald follows the advice in a very specific way. That's hard to believe for a president of the United States in general, and especially for one who supposedly only humored his wife. He followed those calendars to the letter. And the whole thing broke when his chief of staff was fired, who was amazingly named Donald Regan. Hmm. And he wrote a tell-all book where he specifically described how irritating it was because he would have to change all his schedules around to match what the court astrologer was telling him nice and yeah and he and nancy used to butt heads apparently quite a bit about this but he didn't know who the astrologer was or how long that had been going on eventually it came out that joan quigley was the astrologer and nancy kind of railroaded her and joan wrote her own book in defense but this all gets swept under the rug what i found interesting about it is when you start digging into it a little more you realize that the official story does not hold up reagan followed astrology for far longer than that. We can go all the way back to 1967 when he was elected as governor of California, and he even has scheduled his inauguration to occur at 12.10 a.m., so just after midnight, which as far as I know is the only governor's inauguration that's ever occurred just after midnight. And the whole reason he did that was even reported in a local news article at the time as, quote, to take advantage of favorable astrological portents. So we know for a fact that all the way back in 1967, he was definitely following astrology. And I don't believe that it was simply Nancy and it happened because of the 1981 assassination attempt. It was happening way, 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 way before that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's just so fascinating to know that Clearly, there was an interest, and then as soon as that interest was exposed, it was downplayed as much as it could be. Yeah. But I just love to see the elite squirm a little bit, and <laughs> it's an interesting thing to lie about. You know, another thing, and I haven't pulled up the chart to, to verify this, but I've heard this said several times, that part of the reason why it seems to be swept under the rug is, interestingly, Nancy, when she admitted in an interview that she followed astrology, she did it during the void moon, which for modern astrologers, that's generally considered a time in which nothing much will happen in the sense that if the moon is void and you're worried about, say, are you going to lose your job? No, because nothing will happen. Right. And in this mm -hmm. case, she reveals the fact that a current sitting president is following the stars to determine what they're going to do, which is, as far as we know, is the only time this has ever happened. And nobody bats an eye. <laughs> yeah. 
and it's delivered right in that window. Yes. It's fascinating to me, the fact that it just kind of evaporated. Mm -hmm. Everybody talks about Reaganomics today, but they don't talk about the fact that so many of his decisions were following astrological points. In fact, what's even more interesting is that Reagan was commonly called the Teflon president because so many things happened during his presidency where many other of his staff members got indicted, had all these problems like the Iran-Contra thing, but nothing ever happened to Ronald. Hmm. Nothing. He escaped all problems. And Joan Quigley's even quoted in her book when she says that the Teflon in the Teflon presidency was astrology. Uh, I see on the cake, man. Yeah, maybe we should pay less attention to Reaganomics and more to Reaganology. <laughs> <laughs> maybe so. I mean, it's pretty damning, I think, that he's considered one of the most you know, impressive presidents for his economic goals or his economic process, except for the fact that every single one of those meetings that he took and speeches that he gave were all aligned with the stars. Mm -hmm. It is curious. And obviously there are many forms of divination and predictive magic from the past that we've heard about some stranger than others. <laughs> Certainly. Some even seem a bit, a bit primitive, like maybe reading tea leaves or tossing chicken bones. Do you think these methods have any merit or are they just largely used as examples to mock the overall field of prediction? Well, they can be. All of them have been used that way. But for my money, they all have merit. And I'll say why. And it goes right back to the idea of living in a game-like system. Ah. If you wanted to predict something and you live in a system in which everything is following patterns because true randomness is not possible, mm -hmm. then you would need to just point to absolutely anything that is going to stick around a while and build up a data set. And after a while, you're going to see patterns. It's just like the earlier example I gave where if I asked you to give me a random number, it seems random to both of us, but it's not really random. What if I asked you to give me a random number every minute for the next year and I put it all on a table? it's going to become extremely obvious that there's a pattern, right? You're going to give me more sevens or less threes or something like that. And if I had you do that indefinitely, I could actually start making predictions based on it <laughs> because I could say, Greg gave me a seven on this day and this happened. If I have that line up enough times, then I can start saying on days he gives me a seven, <laughs> you know, my car, yeah. <laughs> my car will need to get gassed up. Or whatever. And it sounds foolish when you put it that way, but the, the truth is, is that it all works that way. And it's very easy to see in your own life if you give it a little time. You know, the fact that the planets are used in astrology to make predictions is just by virtue of the fact that they've been around forever and we've marked them down forever. It's as simple as it works because it's just that's what we happen to write down. You know, if you had had all the people who had been astrologers before this had instead just observed the same three rocks with moss on them the entire time and wrote those down forever, then that would be what we would use. We just don't have a data set for those three rocks with moss on them, but we do have a data set for their wandering stars and the fixed stars. And so it's immaterial what you use, whether it's tea leaves, bones, anything. It's just how you use it and finding the patterns that are absolutely there. Mm hmm. I mean, that is such a an interesting way to look at it, man. It does make a lot of sense. And one other thing I wanted to try to tie in is the work of this uh, P. 
Peter Mark Adams and his book Game of Saturn. I know he's been on Rune Soup, and you aren't the only one to recommend him for THC. I've looked into his book a bit, and it seems like the gist is his exploration of a certain form of tarot and its use among the elite during the Renaissance of all times, which is interesting. But since cartomancy is kind of your wheelhouse, can you tell us anything you might have found interesting about his work in particular? Well, it's definitely THC material. (laughs) (laughs) One of the interesting things about Adams is he doesn't say that it's a tarot deck. He specifically defines it as a tarotchi because, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, I've only ever read it, but it's because it doesn't actually fit into the same exact model as what we consider to be modern tarot. It's drawing on very different symbolism. It has very different sequences of cards. And so he kind of removes it from that in his book saying that, you know, as he himself reads tarot and that he's found that deck to be very hard, if you know, extremely enigmatic, almost impossible to read. But what's fascinating about the deck, and it's the Sola Busca tarot or Tarochi, this deck is fascinating because it's one that a family, a ruling class elite family had constructed where they spent huge amounts of money and time having these very specific symbols and people drawn into these cards. And there's multiple references to Saturn. There's multiple references to the sacrifice of babies, children. You have all these strange figures. You have Alexander the Great is on several cards. I think he's on three. And every single time it depicts him in this romantic style of Alexander where, you know, he almost himself is deified. And then you have Nebuchadnezzar and all these strange characters that typically just don't show up in these kinds of settings. And what's fascinating about that is that why? <laughs> why did they spend so much time constructing this? Because the deck shows nowhere. So we know it wasn't used as a playing card deck. And they didn't talk about it for a long time. It just stayed in the family. And then it eventually got donated to a museum. And what's bizarre about that to me is like, why would they spend so much time building this elaborate, strange, enigmatic deck and then say absolutely nothing about it to anyone and not use it for anything? Yeah. Peter Mark Adams goes on in that book to weave a pretty convincing argument that the deck itself constituted a specialized grimoire that just that family had constructed for themselves. It essentially was a dark magic spell that they were trying to weave. And Mm. there's so many things in the symbolism of the cards that really go right into it. You know, we have these repeated references to the phrase Trehor Fatus, which is uh, I'm driven by fate or fate drives me. And we have all these bizarre, extremely dark, (laughs) you know, emblems and these children being thrown into fire These strange naked people doing bizarre things that don't make any sense. And I mean, it's weird even for tarot. So, <laughs> And that's saying something. Yes. But the weirdest thing about it to me is that it's inevitable that you have to come to the conclusion that they were trying to do something. They spent a lot of time. I think the deck took three, four years, something like that for them to construct all the pictures. Why would they spend Three or four years, you know, they paid for all these craftsmen to work on this for this length of time. They could go and buy a tarot deck. Yeah. They could go and buy a very expensive tarot deck. 
why would they need a personal one made and why did they deviate so heavily? Somebody made the decision of specifically needing a deck that evoked Saturn and even, you know, older deities like, oh, I can't remember his name, but there's the deity that's all about child sacrifice and all these strange, out-of-the-way historical figures. Somebody needed a deck for a specific reason that they were willing to spend a lot of time and energy to acquire, and they weren't using it to play a game, and they didn't want to even talk about it, which is interesting, especially when you look at you know a lot of classical magical systems also consistently say that keeping things on the DL is a big part of it. Right. Yeah, and so everything that they did aligns perfectly with what people researching occult systems at the time would have done if they wanted to weave a very dark spell. <laughs> and why would somebody who is rich and powerful do that unless there was more to be gained there? And it inevitably points to something that I think a lot of THC listeners already know is that there is a consistent pattern of the ruling class knowing a lot more about occult subjects than they let on. Yeah, true that. That's a solid preview. I'm definitely going to see what I can do. Peter Mark Adams, Game of Saturn. Also, when I went to Gordon White's event in L.A., his little meetup, two or or three people right out of the gate were like, oh, my God, you're the higher side chats guy. Have you read Game of Saturn? <laughs> and so it definitely seems like something I'm going to have to get to soon. But damn, man. I'm really glad we decided to do this pretty robust show about prediction in general. Anything else to add before we go? How do you see the space weather going for the rest of the year? Is the eclipse energy still playing a part? Definitely. I think that that's going to be something that we see play out for at least the rest of the year. I think seeing what's been going on with Trump and the White House recently, that's not going to go anywhere. That's going to get worse before it gets better. There are some things that seem to point to it all just kind of dying out and settling down and ultimately working out for him, but not all of them. Hmm. And looking at the whole regular situation, the fact that he's a very vengeful guy, that begs a lot of questions. The fact that, you know, eclipses typically, they don't bring in anything new. They reveal something that's been in play for a while and is ultimately now going to be coming to light and impacting whoever happens to have these. I mean, it can impact. it's going to impact everyone. I don't want to give the impression that Trump is just specifically being targeted by the eclipse. <laughs> he does have a chart where he will definitely feel the effect. And I think that it plays out in a very public way, so it's fascinating. Right. Yeah, but it's inevitable, too, that it's going to affect each and every one of us at least a little bit. If you're going from a traditional perspective, a lot of times... Aspects, even if they're happening by sign rather than degree, meaning that if anything in relation on your chart to Leo is going to be affected in some way by that. But most of the astrologers that I know will particularly tell you that it really only matters if it happens in a pretty tight orb. So, you know, if any listeners at home have their natal chart or want to get one, there's several places online you can go to get free natal charts drawn up for you. If you look at that and you have any planets at 28 degrees that are, let me look here. You know, if you have any planets that are at or near 28 degrees and they're not in Cancer, Virgo, Pisces, or Capricorn, those are going to be affected in some way. 
hmm. because they're going to be drawing an aspect with that eclipse in some capacity. And how it manifests for you is going to be interesting. For some people, it's going to happen very short. And I think that's what a lot of people were looking for with Trump. They wanted, you know, I don't know, like aliens to come down on the day or something like that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. usually it's more like a string that begins to unravel the shirt, you know, or it's not always bad. It could be good, too. It could also be that final straw to get you to get off your butt and get the job that you've been wanting instead of sitting at the job that you hate or what have you. True. And yeah. And a lot of times, you know, eclipses, bigger events like this, these will be things that like everything else, it's going to require effort on your part to see it through, especially, you know, if you're trying to get something good out of it. But eclipses also tend to bring in things that aren't entirely within your power. So you may just have something happen (laughs) in your life that, will draw you to the, like you may, maybe you get uh, on that path to find the job you really wanted because you got fired. I don't know. Right. Like the problem with eclipses a lot of times is you end up with this incredibly vague, something may or may not happen in your life, which (laughs) is a total waste. But without being able to look at someone's exact chart, there's no way that I can really, I mean, I could go on all day and I wouldn't cover every possible angle, but rest assured that we will continue to see things in the future affected by the eclipse, especially in the White House. It's going to be an interesting year. Right on, man. And before we completely close the books, of course, tell the people where to find your website and any other plans that you have for your future career on the fringe or anything like that. (laughs) Well, like you said at the beginning, you can find me at my website, Liminal Astrology. I try and post new articles there as frequently as I possibly can. That's also, I post a free horoscope every week. If you're into horoscopes, you can sign up for my newsletter through there if you want to stay updated on when I post new material. If you're in the Dallas, Texas area, I just recently moved here, and I've been trying to get out and do more public tarot readings and things like that. So if you're interested in finding me at one of those, the newsletter is where you're going to find that. And if you happen to be around here and you know somewhere I should be showing up and haven't, you know, drop me a line because new, new cities are hard. <laughs> Sure that. <laughs> Finally, of course, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Preston Astro. I really the only social media site I use right now. I haven't haven't gone into the, the Facebook and Instagram thing yet. <laughs> the temptation is strong, I know. Yes, but, yes. Awesome, man. Well, I had a great time. Good talking to you and best of luck out there. Hey, thanks, Greg. You got it. Oh, oh, it's magic, you know, sweet baby Jesus people. Preston Gibbs and the prediction extravaganza. Astrology and magic, always interesting topics to me. When they come into play historically and in the elite spheres of influence, even better. And I didn't really think simulation theory was going to play such a central role today, but I just think it makes so much sense too. It explains quite a lot, of course, as Preston said, and it was just a happy accident to me to be able to get down into it like that and point out why those scenes of the man in black digging for the deeper game are so great. Fun stuff. Big thanks to Preston, deep in the Lone Star State. I would connect him with my buddy Zach that the Denver meetup people met, but Zach just moved to Houston like two months before the hurricane. And I do think it's interesting that we look across the eclipse path from northwest to southeast. We got fires at one end, 40 plus owl man, man bat sightings in the middle, and hurricanes and floods on the other end. 
Granted, Chicago wasn't really in the flight path exactly, but if you just took a diagonal swipe across the country in the general motion that the eclipse traveled, it is sort of nuts what's happening now that was non-existent in the pre-eclipse reality not long ago. But the Owlman conversation, that is better suited for the next episode. And anyway, yes, Preston makes a lot of solid points, and it's always fun to have a guest who's also a listener because we can talk inside baseball a bit. So I would say pretty much all your hopes and dreams should have come true today. And you know there's a second hour if you sign up for Plus. And let me tell you what you missed, or what you didn't miss for those who are in the club. But we did talk about why understanding the nature of prediction should eliminate fear in our lives, Preston's thoughts and experiences on other realms of magic, how the shape of the Earth is pretty irrelevant to Preston's model of predictive astrology, how he feels just as a general THC listener about Flat Earth guests. Obviously, he speaks for everyone. And of course, NASA deceptions and all sorts of higher side stuff. Also, in an interesting synchronicity, the publisher of Peter Mark Adams' Game of Saturn that we talked about, Scarlet Imprint, they legitimately tweeted me some Peter Mark Adams audio in between the time the show was recorded and the time it's airing, which is just so coincidental because it's not like they tweet a bunch of stuff at me or maybe they never have. But they got a copy in the mail for me, and I think we're going to set that up too. Sounds so interesting. In the meantime, Peter was on Rune Soup, if you want to listen to that. And I'm going to get a move on. I'll be back soon with an extensive look at the current state of cryptids and abductions, and of course those Chicago sightings. But until then, I've done my part. Your move, historical oracles, star readers, and parser-outers of the predictable patterns in the patchwork of reality. Your fucking move.